Good morning. It's Monday, the 7th of August and I'm coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital where it's not raining so much, but it's as dug up as always. Our top stories and themes for the day, Reliance sets ESG environment targets in its annual report highlights human rights and governance. India's import licenses on laptops and computers could it have addressed the problem differently? The government's new personal data protection bill may be more intrusive than protective. And hmm, India's largest statue of the Prime Minister. This is a core report with Govindraj Atiraj. Reliance touches upon human rights in an annual report. It's a 267-page, extremely exhaustive and detailed presentation to its 3.6 million, roughly, shareholders and more visual than perhaps many in the past. The Reliance Industries annual report to shareholders kicks off, interestingly, with a pledge to become net carbon zero by 2035, even as Chairman Mukesh Ambani emphasized the company's transition from traditional fossil fuels to renewable energy sources. He says the company's five gigafactories in Jamnagar in Gujarat are progressing well to establish a world-class, self-sufficient green energy ecosystem. He also stressed on circularity or the circular economy, particularly in chemical products, and said that this would be driven through partnerships with innovator companies worldwide. Ambani said his new energy initiatives would contribute to the global effort of limiting the rise in average temperatures and then also spoke of the imminent listing of geo-financial services, something we've discussed in some detail on the core report earlier. Amani also spoke of, quite interestingly, how human rights considerations have been at the core of Reliance's DNA since inception. The principles of human rights are enshrined in our internal codes of conduct as well as our business partner codes of conduct, he said. Human rights could of course be generic or specific to business linkages and the work done by Reliance Foundation but I'm not sure whether Reliance has outlined this phrase in this manner before. With so much focus on corporate governance, particularly amongst large investors who tend to bring this up when they invest in India, and with several leading infamous examples in the listed and unlisted space, Ambani is not surprisingly trying to draw some attention to this. Ambani says they emphasize the importance of board oversight given the fact that the company's diverse and evolving operations impact essential sectors of the Indian economy and talks about the ESG committee to ensure continued alignment to best ESG practices and compliance with applicable ESG frameworks. So if I've been rattling about ESG, it means environment, social and corporate governance. I will come back to corporate governance in a moment. Reliance Industries also sought shareholder approval to give Mukesh Ambani another five-year term as chairman and managing director of the company till 2029 a period during which he has opted to draw nil salary, which has been the case, for whatever it's worth, for the last three years as well, starting in 2021. Mukesh Ambani is now 66 years old, and by the way, he has been on the Reliance board since 1977. In general, of course, shareholders would be reassured to hear that Mr. Ambani is in good health and charged up for the next few years. Now, Reliance has made it a point to talk about corporate governance. So I thought I would pick up on a few allied points, which might be interesting. So the Reliance Board has four executive directors, which means they work for the company, and eight non-executive directors, which means they don't directly work for the company and sit outside. Between sitting fees and commissions, most independent directors appear to earn upwards of rupees 2 crore a year from Reliance Industries, a not small amount. The only woman on the board who is not Nita Ambani is former State Bank of India chairperson Arundhati Bhattacharya. 
Amongst the eight non-executive directors, there are two former senior government officials, including an ex-CBDT chairman and a former finance secretary of India. Adil Zainulbhai, formerly managing director of McKinsey India, and Dr. Shumit Banerjee, former CEO of Booz, the consulting firm, are also on the board. His Excellency Yasser Otman H. L. Rumayan, chairman of refining giant Saudi Aramco, is still on the board, perhaps in anticipation of resuming talks to take a 20% stake in Reliance's oil to chemicals business. The deal, then worth around $19 billion, was signed in 2019 and called off in November 2021. The reasons ascribed for the split were differences arising over valuation. Reliance's annual report also lists out the leadership of all its key businesses, which also further reveals the fact that there are very few women in the top leadership positions, and I'm not accounting for family here, but I will do that as well. Several divisions like finance, digital services, oil and gas, and risk are almost entirely male-dominated, excluding the one woman, Isha Ambani, a family member who's present on the digital services team, along with 21 men. The retail division has 16 men and two women. Both are family or linked to family. Oil to chemicals has 14 men and one woman. Oil and gas and risk are entirely male. Retail has 18 men, two women, including once again, a family member. In rough reckoning, of a total of roughly 80 leadership positions in Reliance Group across verticals that I could see on the annual report, I think I could count only two women who were not family or linked members. If you included the family and linked members, it became four. Now, this is not to make a case either way, given that traditional businesses like oil, petroleum and factory-led positions have been male-dominated in many similar organizations, not just in India but worldwide. But my sense is that the question of diversity is something that Reliance will have to reckon with in coming days in all businesses and perhaps more so in consumer and retail. By the way, Saudi Aramco has a woman on the board too who is not a royal in the form of Lynn Laverty Elsenens, a big name in the energy industry and earlier with Sunoco and Royal Dutch Shell. Now this was about leadership. Reliance's workforce does get more diverse a few rungs below. Evidently, it says around 19% of its total staff is women. And, by the way, it hired about 262,000 people in all last year. Finally, the annual general meeting on August 28th is where the company will unveil most of its major targets, plans and strategies to get there, as it has done in the past. I do wonder, for purely nostalgic reasons perhaps, whether it will come back to physical annual general meetings though, at the 1,000-seater grand old Birla Matushri Sabagar Auditorium in Marine Lines in South Bombay. Though Reliance did shift its 2019 AGM to a college, also in South Mumbai. Speaking of energy transitions, even as Reliance emphasized a shift away from fossil fuels and chemicals, state-owned and run oil and gas major ONGC has said it will set up two oil-to-chemical plants in India to convert crude oil directly into high-value chemical products as it prepares for an energy transition that is shaking up the industry worldwide. Now, with the world transitioning away from fossil fuel or trying to Companies around the globe are looking at new avenues to use crude oil. ONGCA already has two subsidiaries, Mangalore Refinery and Petrochemicals and ONGC Petro Editions that run petrochemical units in Mangalore in Karnataka and Dahej in Gujarat. Incidentally, all forms of fuel, from high-speed diesel to motor spirit, are at all-time highs in consumption levels right now in India. So while the transition is beginning, so is the demand for fossil fuels and everything they drive. Speaking of driving, Maruti Suzuki has said it wants to double capacity in nine years. Chairman R.C. Bhargava said also in an annual report that it took the company 40 years to reach 2 million cars, but the next 2 million would come in nine years. The company would have 28 models, of which at least six would be electric vehicles, 
And in case you were wondering, yes, Maruti has been admittedly and deliberately slower to announce grand EV or electric vehicle model plans, similar to partner Toyota, still betting on internal combustion and hybrids for a few more years. Was imposing import licenses the only way to go? Business Standard columnist T.N. Nainan called it a season for bad ideas, referring to the government's decision to license the imports of personal computers, laptops and notebooks. Also pointing out that this is one of the few times such a restriction has been imposed after import licenses were mostly abolished more than 30 years ago, or when we began to liberalize the economy. Which obviously begs the question, which direction are we exactly headed right now? Before we come to that, the bottom line is that there is a fairly legitimate concern on electronics hardware coming from China. India has already cracked down, as have other countries, on telecom hardware that powers mobile phone networks and the like. India, as you know, has also cracked down on software like apps. But if that's the key concern, which is hardware that we're talking about now, could there have been other ways to address it without a 70s-like move? As Mr. Nainan says, The reliance on economic policy tools like tariffs has given way to administrative tools like licenses or, to bring back some nostalgia, the grand license permit Raj. I reached out to Ashok K. Bhattacharya, or AKB, the editorial director for the Business Standard and well-known columnist on economic issues. I began by asking him to define what import license were, keeping in mind that many of us were either young, unaware, or did not even exist when licensing ended in India. Pretty phrase, uh, I can describe it as the Neta Babu Raj. What you mean by Neta Babu Raj is where the requirement for you import anything outside the shores of this country is decided on a policy level by the politician and then implemented by the bureaucrat. Till 1991, import licensing was very much a common thing. But from 1991 onwards, we abolished import licensing from almost every item, barring a few security items. We are called restricted licenses. This decision to bring licensing for computers is actually you have added these computers into that list of restricted licensed goods. So that is what exactly what it means when the government decides on each and every application that whether this imports are permissible. But is it only a matter of paperwork? Because when you import, you obviously deal with the government, you're dealing with the customs department, you're dealing with foreign trade and so on. In this case, maybe what they're saying is just you have to fill up two more forms and then you could get it if there's nothing else wrong with. If you want to import something, right now, if it is free, you don't have to go to the government. You just get your foreign exchange from your own account, most probably, and import that stuff. And there is a customs check, which is routine. So there is at no point either the data or the Babu comes in, which is why I think this is a highly regressive move. Regressive for three specific reasons. One, it undermines the country's ease of doing business. Number two, it affects India's exports competitiveness because uh, your export competitiveness will be harmed. Along with that, India's ability to integrate with the global value chains will also take a setback. Uh, and third, and the most important thing is that India had harnessed its ability to be a, a kind of a, an emerging center of global capacity centers. Now, that was dependent on easy import policies. 
So for all these three counts, I consider this move a regressive step. Okay, now if we were to look a little ahead, there were two or three points that the government is arguing and I'll try and maybe ask you in maybe a phrase, which is that, is there a method in this madness? So the method, I think the way the government seems to be saying it is that, okay, these are not trusted sources or alternatively, if the sources are trusted, then you can use them. Conversely, if let's say it's not Chinese, then it's fine. And if it is Chinese, obviously it's a question. So could that be the method? Well, in my view, there are three clear methods. The first method, and it is not just with this step, but in the many steps that have preceded this, is that the government has been consciously taking steps to support domestic manufacturing. So clearly, this is yet another step by which you are trying to support domestic manufacturing so that the domestic manufacturers are encouraged in a certain way. doesn't really matter that the country's competitiveness will be lost. So manufacturing base is supported. Number two is that you are trying to enhance the appeal of the production linked incentive scheme because as of now, the production linked incentive scheme has been rolled out, but it is yet to take off. This move to impose licensing on imports of computers will actually make the PLI scheme for this sector even more attractive. And the third method is something that I partially sympathize with with the government, which is the national security concern, that you are worried uh, about systems and computers coming from sources that are not trustworthy. Now, my view is that this is maybe a genuine problem. If it is a genuine problem, then there are ways of tackling this problem. But a generalized licensing regime for goods to be imported from anywhere in the world is something which is not the right solution. The right solution is target those specific sources from which such untrustworthy computers or systems can come in. As a matter of fact, there are many countries which have imposed bans on equipment, particularly telecom equipment, from countries in China. So why should we not have done something similar. Instead, what we did was to impose an overall on import. So already the government has taken a step back and saying that, okay, we'll wait for a month and so on. And the last and the larger question, there seems to be not enough consultation before many of these steps. So why is that and how could that be resolved, if at all? Well, I think uh, this, is, this is also not a new flaw in my view. The government has been betraying this lack of understanding of the need for prior consultation before taking a decision. Remember that tax collected at source decision was taken through a budget. But clearly, the manner in which the government went about it uh, through this withdrawal of the TCS regime clearly showed that not enough consultation preceded that decision of the budget. In my view, this is also one of those decisions which did not get the benefit of prior consultation. It is only proper that the stakeholders, the users, are taken on board on why this move needs to be initiated. And as I said, that the only real reason could be national security, with which everybody in this country will sympathize. But then there are better ways of tackling that national security concern. Right. Uh, AKB, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you.
Will the Digital Personal Data Protection Bill really protect us? The government of India last week introduced the Digital Personal Data Protection Bill 2023 in Parliament. The objectives of this bill is to protect the right to privacy of citizens, as the name itself suggests, including, importantly, children. But some clauses in the bill do seem to suggest a need for debate before it goes through. Primary among them is data collection by the government itself and the self-awarded freedom to do so, including from private companies. There are also some logistical challenges like asking for a verifiable parental consent up to 18 years. And also, the government could block access to websites on advice from a not-so-neutrally structured data protection board which this bill hopes to create. The government already does that incidentally, which is to block websites, but this could get out of hand. While there will be more detailed discussions on some of the specific aspects of this bill, I thought it would make sense to get an overview for which I reached out to Nikhil Power, founder and editor of Media Nama, technology policy analysis website based out of Delhi. This was a complicated bill to put together, Govind. It's been in the works for almost five years and it's changed multiple times. Many of these changes have been controversial. And there doesn't seem to be agreement on what the final construct of the bill should be even now because opposition party members are pushing back against this bill and to be honest, so is civil society because the objectives of the bill, it seems, haven't been met and it's more of a dilution. So it's difficult for me to call it a data protection bill. It seems more like a data access bill and it does help some segments like it helps AI but it doesn't really provide data protection for citizens. At the reading of the bill, and I was going through your own report, I mean, it does talk about aspects like, you know, protection, children and consent and so on. So I'm assuming that's the good part, but you're also saying that somewhere all of this is getting balanced out by things or aspects which are not as friendly. I think the balance clearly lies in favor of not protecting uh, citizens' rights, Govind. So... Let's start on the business front, actually. In making an attempt to protect children, what's happened here with this bill is that every single website, every single app will have to verify the age of every individual using that service. And it has to be verifiable consent. So children are defined as people below the age of 18. And for them, it's basically for those, you know, children who are growing up between 13 and 18, they're robbed of agency. They need parental permission to do anything on the internet, to access any website, even a news website, even a podcast, to ensure that children aren't accessing their app, their service. Businesses will have to verify the age of every individual. And so that creates a real hurdle, right, in terms of you're switching from site to site, app to app, every single place you have to verify yourself. I think it's extremely impractical what the government has done here in order to try and protect children, but it actually robs them of their agency. In the UK, the approach is access first, and then there are certain specific businesses which are problematic, which have a higher threshold. In India, it is restrict first, and then there'll be certain businesses or certain categories of businesses which will be whitelisted. So this approach is actually opposite of what it should be, to be honest. The other one which I mentioned was that from an AI perspective, it's great in the sense AI companies can scrape all publicly available data and use it to build their LLMs, to build their databases. But from a privacy perspective, it means that any information we make public can be scraped and copied and used to by anyone anywhere. 
and in fact there have been lawsuits against a facial recognition company Clearview AI in the US and it lost those lawsuits in fact because they were scraping social media photographs of people to train their AI and identify people so while it's good for AI it's bad for privacy which basically defeats the purpose of the bill my third primary contention and I'll restrict myself to three even though there are more is that there is unrestricted government access to data it effectively means that the government can exempt itself and its agencies from any data protection aspects of this bill and for unspecified reasons they can also ask private companies for data on an individual so if you look at it every company then becomes a data collector for the government and so it's a privatization of surveillance in a very different way so you know the putaswami judgment which gave us the fundamental right to privacy actually puts in restrictions regarding necessary proportionate so that any violation of privacy is ring fenced even from a government perspective but to my mind this is violative of that fundamental but nikhil the government could access many of these things even today isn't it through court orders and so on correct they could access to court orders but they don't need a court order anymore okay it could be a court order it could be a, let's say a letter from a senior bureaucrat so just like the government can block pretty much any site it wants because there's a government committee overseeing blocking of apps and services today in india in the same way it's just one bureaucrat telling the other and i'm not even sure whether there needs to be a paper trail we'll see what happens but uh, you know if you talk to companies you know that they would get phone calls asking for access to complete data and if they didn't get access then they would feel the brunt of various agencies india hasn't defined the phrase national security and so it's a, such a broad phrase that it can be used at any point in time for any kind of access it's uh, and i keep saying that india has china envy the government essentially wants control this bill enables a disproportionate amount of control over citizens it's the basis uh, for a surveillance state if you look at what the congress government had begun something called nadgrid which the bjp wants to complete that's real time access to public and private databases the initial plan was 21 public and private databases the later stages actually envisaged over 900 public and private databases and all of that being given as a real time feed to a dashboard there are statements in parliament to this effect that the ministry has disclosed so i'm worried yeah ekil last question so a lot of our data actually sits outside the country our accounts on uh, gmail or maybe facebook or any any of these social platforms so where does this loss come in and what reach does it have particularly again when involving children and so on you've actually touched upon one of the positives of this law they've taken the correct approach to cross border data flows which is that data of indian citizens can be stored outside of india unless there is a local regulator which mandates data localization so if for example the reserve bank of india has mandated data localization for digital payments and i think sebi is considered that for any stock market transaction data as well that data will have to be stored locally but on the whole it is access see many indian companies rely on an open internet taking one service from a company in japan another from mexico another from guatemala wherever right so we don't even know where these services originate from but we use all of these services to build our businesses every business uses 
hundreds of these small, small, small services from across the globe. Data localization would have destroyed that and would have actually hurt smaller startups. An opening up mechanism, which is that, I mean, status quo remains, but the government may block data from being stored in certain jurisdictions. So, for example, China, to my mind, can be one such jurisdiction. And that's from a national security perspective. And that makes sense. So, correct approach to data localization, I think, from a child protection, AI, uh, etc., I think there is a bit of a problem. Nikhil, uh, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Govind. Appreciate it. And hmm, a large statue of the Prime Minister. A Mumbai-based refining infrastructure to airlines, to media, to protein powder company, which recently acquired the bankrupt hill city Lavasa near Mumbai, has said it will build a statue of Prime Minister Modi as a mark of admiration for his unwavering efforts to preserve the unity and integrity of India. There would also be a museum showcasing the new India, a report in the Free Press Journal says. Significantly, the statue will apparently stand at about 190 to 200 meters compared to the 182-meter statue of unity in Gujarat and will thus be taller than Sardar Vallabhbhai Patel. At this point, I would pause to wonder if the Prime Minister or his office has been consulted on this grand plan. Having been there and around Lavasa, I would say it needs many things. More importantly, people need to come there. And we need to see the restoration of the many crumbling buildings left abandoned after the project ran into financial trouble. The statue, if so, could surely come after that. That's it from me for today. Have a great week ahead and see you soon. Do send us your feedback and visit us on www.thecore.in where you will find more new in-depth reports being added every day and exclusive columns as well. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.